Let's stand together and let's read Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Would you stand with me? This is God's word. We jump into a, a new part of not just his, his word, but a new genre. This is a gospel, not a letter. It's been some time since we've been in a gospel, and we're jumping in in chapter 3 on purpose so that when Christmas and Advent comes around, we're going to go back and do chapters 1 and 2 at that time. So we start at the launch of Jesus' public ministry, and this morning will be like, be like an introduction a little bit to the gospel of Matthew. Hear God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the thresh, his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God. Father, we ask that you'd help us to grow through this. Thank you for this gospel of Matthew. Thank you for this first-person testimony of Jesus and his ministry. Thank you that it's different then, but affirms that which we're taught in the other gospels, Luke and Mark and John, but there's unique areas of emphases in this gospel for us. And I pray that right now in this time, in our church's life, in our individual lives, you would show us that intersection and we would heed the warnings that John the Baptist brings in this text. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I had a conversation with Nate, uh, my 16-year-old son, almost 16, uh, earlier this week. <clears throat> there was nothing that had precipitated it, so don't try to go there. I just said to him, Nate, you got to know the issue is maturity. Like all the time for all of us, the issue is maturity. It's true for me, Nate. It's true for you. It's true for your sisters, your mother. It's true. For, the issue is maturity. As you grow up, the Bible tells us the issue that we ought concern ourselves with is maturity in Christ. In a world that is not in Christ. We saw that in John's letter. Maybe you hang out among and with people who are not interested in growing in Christ, but you have to know the issue for all of us is maturity in Christ. The issue is not your age. There can be young children who have a faith that far surpasses someone who is, who's been a believer for decades. But a young child whose faith is maturing and is matured in how it handles crises Maturity is the issue. The issue is not creativity. 
The issue is not really strength. It's not beauty. It's certainly not success. Every one of those things need to come to a head. And the issue, I think, is maturity. Think of Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, from which we get our mission statement. Paul says this. He says, Christ, we proclaim warning and teaching everyone that with, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. But if you listen to how Paul says that, it should almost startle us for a second. He actually says that the way that he goes about presenting people to God mature in Christ, the first thing he does is warning. He says teaching with all wisdom. But before he says that, he says, so the first way I go about it is warning. That if God's people will not heed God's word, in a world that does not see the Lord's Christ as the king of glory, that person will not mature in Christ. Warning is the first thing. And as we look here in the Gospel of Matthew, isn't that what we just read? Doesn't, doesn't the public ministry of Jesus begin with warning from a herald in the wilderness, which we'll look at in a second. But as I've been thinking through those who attend our church and those I don't know, some who listen online, I know that there are many who are either new to the faith or coming from outside of the faith, and, and this can be a stumbling block. And the thought is, well, what do you mean? I thought that the gospel means good news. And, and don't you Christians believe that God has given us forgiveness and he promises healing and he gives promises of righteousness and he's loving and his unconditional fatherly affection is, is perfect? You don't need to warn people about stuff like that. Don't you invite people into stuff like that? We don't warn people about perfect love. But here's the catch when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. It's only those who heed the warning to repent and turn from self and from world to the king whom God sent who will experience the goodness that we would never have to be warned about. So we're going to start here at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew and we're going to see the way that the Bible presents the kingdom coming to earth to us. It is in the form of a very, very bold warning. So let's consider the message from John the Baptist, verse 1 to 3. We read, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is not just John's message. In chapter 4, verse 17, after his baptism, after all that stuff, when Jesus goes out into his public ministry and he begins to go around teaching, here's what the Gospel of Matthew says. Verbatim, same thing. The message Jesus shared was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Matthew's Gospel is unique to use that phrase, kingdom of heaven. So let me just explain this briefly. It's not that difficult to understand. A lot of the other Gospels will call it the kingdom of God, right? So is the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, a different thing? Is it the same thing? Well, as one commentator helped me kind of understand this week, that the Jews would have a, a very commonly used kind of gift of, let me say this right, circumlocation. Cir did I say that right? I practiced it this morning. It, found, it sounded right. Um, yeah, it, locution, circumlocution. Anyway, they talk around something. I don't, I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be smart. I'm actually proving that I'm not. Um, the Jews would not say the name of God right? I don't want to offend the ears of the Almighty. Wouldn't say Yahweh, right? The kingdom of the Lord. Wouldn't, wouldn't say that. And so for fear of offending, and, 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 and actually more than fear of offense, but fear of failing to honor the Lord, this would be a talking around it 
We're going to say the same thing differently. So Matthew is a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. And so this kingdom of heaven language is also incredibly important. He's going to be talking about the same kingdom the other gospels represent. But he's going to be doing it with an angle to help his Jewish audience hear this word. So he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is coming now. And Matthew tells us that the one who showed up announcing this, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So we read that earlier. AJ did Isaiah 40 verse 3. Interestingly enough, in John's gospel, John has John the Baptist actually quoting and saying, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. Matthew, the narrator tells us, In John's gospel, John himself says it, but Jesus himself is going to say the same thing in Luke chapter 1. This is the one about whom Isaiah spoke, the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. Here's what's going on. There's been 400 years of silence, of no prophecy. 400 years where the prophetic voice had been silenced, and John is the one that Isaiah said would come when God would again speak through his prophets to his people. Probably an easiest way to understand this is, is in this case, you can actually turn to the last chapter in the entire Old Testament canon, and we read functionally the last prophecy in the Old Testament. So in Malachi chapter 1, we read, I mean chapter 4, excuse me, verse 1, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root or branch. Okay. Malachi 4.1, last prophecy, judgment's coming. But then the very last two verses of the entire Old Testament, Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the last chapter of the Old Testament tells us clearly that before judgment comes, a prophetic voice in the spirit of Elijah will again show up and that prophetic voice is going to address the hearts of the hearers that will be turned to God and turned to one another lest they experience the judgment that is coming. And now 400 years later, here's this wild man. No doubt who he is. We must know that it was the one that was going to be sent. Again, Luke 1, 17, Jesus says, he's the one who is coming in the power and spirit of Elijah. So consider this messenger. John's in the wilderness, right? He's in the desert. The desert is where prophets throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant would meet with God. The desert is where God's own people were made to depend on him. This is where God said, I'm going to take you as a motley crew of people. I'm going to make you into a holy nation, a nation of priests, my people, right? That's in the desert and wilderness that happened. It's also interesting and important that John comes on the edge of town. He's not coming from the center of civilization or the center of spiritual life. He comes 400 years later, a wild man out in the wilderness. His garb is, is not much, certainly not luxury. There's camel's hair, camel's skin. This is the roughest, most crude, cheapest outer garment a guy like John could have and wear nothing impressive about his garb his diet even the children beautifully shared this morning he ate locusts and wild honey grasshoppers and then he would compete with the bears 
Not the kind of honey that a beekeeper would keep that would just be such a blessing you buy at the farmer's market. No, we're talking about risking himself just like a bear would stick a paw into a tree and risk all the stings of the wild bees. This is what John would live off of. This man is not impressive by any earthly standard. I just think of my own life as a minister of the gospel. He's the opposite of a present, kind of a presentable, smooth church planter who's got a good marketing plan. He's the opposite of that. He's the opposite of what many of us even either took classes about or read books about. If you want to be effective, there's ways to make sure that you're noticed and that people want to come. John is not that guy. And yet, look what happens. This man who looks and smelled and sounded offensive like Elijah, we read that people from the big city of Jerusalem and then from all of Judea and the region of the Jordan, they went out and they confessed their sins when they heard his message and they received his baptism. Who are these people? Well, these are the common folk. Again, some reading this week, Jews would have a term for the common folk, the Amharats, or in Greek, maybe you've heard this, the Hoi Polloi. This is the people of the land. They responded with confession of sin and the receiving of John's baptism. So some, the response was this. They basically heard John speak and they said, if it's true that the kingdom's at hand, I'm not ready. If it's true that the king is coming, I'm not prepared to meet him. I'm unclean. I'll confess what I know of my uncleanness. I recognize that though there's much I don't understand, I need to be washed. And you say that the, the one who's coming will wash me. So the people of the land received their baptism, confessing their sins. But there's another group who responded. It was altogether different. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the clergy, the religious leaders, they came out to his baptism. Notice what the text doesn't say. It does not say they came to be baptized. They came out to his baptism to investigate, to report back to Jerusalem. They came to judge. We have total contrast in response here. Notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, brothers and fathers, thank you for coming. Thank you for legitimizing this ritual by the Jordan River with gracing us with your presence. Thank you for being here with us. It's not how he responds at all. He, he's so offensive in his tone. You brood of vipers. You snakes. You who deceives. You snakes who poison. By the way, I was almost late this morning, got a snake out of the pool filter. Hilarious to watch Corey and I do this together. I hate snakes. I'm scared of snakes. Even little guys. So John says, you vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath of God. And so then we have the rest of the message starts because of the audience that came to him. And it is a message of warning, of judgment, of heavy judgment. One of the reasons I share with the kids about the idea of an intersection or a cross is because the Greek word for judgment, the word from which we see wrath here, is the word krisis, from which we get the word crisis. So with scathing words, John is making it clear that his message and his baptism are not some ritual to be marginalized. Certainly they're not a ritual only for those who are marginalized. John is saying to the leaders of the Jews, this is a supreme moment of crisis 
for all who are unclean. That's the message of John by the Jordan. This man resembling Elijah in dress, in declaration, he looks to the Jewish leaders and he says, you need to be baptized, which would be utterly scandalizing to the audience. We need to understand that. See, for the Jews who, who at this point would hear this, whether they thought he was funny when he used the word snake or not, the, the offer and demand of baptism would have been so enraging to them. Because up to this point, the only baptism these Jewish leaders would know would be for Gentile converts who convert to Judaism. It's called a proselyte baptism. And so these pagan converts, when they say, we do want to believe in your God with you, in order to prove to you that we know we've been pagan, we will baptize ourselves to symbolize our own filth, how unclean we've been, as a part of a process to convert to Judaism. So when John shows up on the scene and he looks at the leaders and he says, you're, you're poisonous snakes. You need to confess your sins. You need to be baptized. It was his way of looking to them and saying, you are unclean. You must repent. You are not ready for God's Messiah, whom you should know is coming. You are not ready for the kingdom because repentance is the requirement. And he's looking at them and he's speaking with such strong words because these would be the folks who would say, yeah, we get it. God's holy. Like we know how to tip our hat to the God of all holiness from our own posture of pomp and circumstance. That's not what's being demanded here. And so I have a quote I put on the back of your bulletin from R.C. Sproul. The call here is to radical conversion, to turn from sin and intoxication with this world and to direct one's soul to God. And there is no inclusion for anyone in the kingdom of God who has not done that. That is as true today as it was when John made that announcement by the Jordan. John speaks with a sense of urgency. Something new and radical is about to happen. The breakthrough of God's kingdom is at hand. And if his kingdom's breaking through, it's only the clean and the repentant and the humble who can be saved by the king and not destroyed by his wrath. And see, John is so offensive. I guess I appreciate this about him. This is what I know that I can do in my offense when I'm frustrated with someone is I'm anticipating all the rebuttals and I'm more locked and loaded than the person who hasn't even spoken their rebuttal is. Right? And that's what John does here. He says, oh, I know what you're thinking. You say among yourselves, I've gone to church enough. I've tithed. I'm nice. I'm respected in town. I haven't cheated on my wife. I'm not an addict. I know what you're saying to yourself. You say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. In fact, go look. Look at the, the graveyard outside of the church. Look at how many of those tombstones have our family's last name on it. John says, that means nothing. I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones in the Jordan River Raise up children of Abraham if he so chooses. Your pedigree, your ritualistic performance, your own circumcision, your reputation, they matter nothing. They matter nothing without a changed heart that repents and turns to God's king. Only a heart changed from stone to life, from death to life, from rebellion to repentance, only a heart changed by God will be included in the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. And so let me just throw this real quickly It's kind of an application. The only thing that qualifies you for the kingdom of God is if God has softened your heart and you know you've responded in faith to believe the gospel. The only thing that qualifies you is a changed heart. 
And you know that he's changed your heart because you long to repent and believe the gospel again and again and again. John looks at these leaders and he says, so see, you come out here to this river to judge this ritual. Do you not see the crisis of judgment that is on you in this moment? He's very urgent in his words. Look at the words next. He says, he has this metaphor. Even now, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Even now, right now, he says. And I love this. It's helpful. John doesn't like say, hey, look, the, the, the lumberjack woke up this morning and he's thinking about going to his shed to fetch his ax. And then when he goes to the shed to fetch his ax, he needs to sharpen his blade. And then he's going to go back and pack up his lunch and go out to the wood to select which tree he should chop down. That is not John's metaphor here. John actually says very clearly, no, even now the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Translation, the, the tree has already suffered many penetrating blows from the blade. And there's just one more swing of that ax at the root of the tree for judgment to descend on those who've rejected God, his word, and will reject his king. And so John's looking at these leaders and saying, do you not understand the crisis of judgment that is upon you? Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus said the same thing in John 15. If anyone doesn't abide in me, doesn't bear fruit, he will be cast out as a branch and thrown into the fire. See, the crisis for them and and, and for us as we listen, because John says every tree Every tree that doesn't bear fruit is words that are empty that say, God, my bad. I do know that what you have declared of your king and your kingdom, I'm sorry, I I forgot. But I have no fruit in keeping with repentance. No fruit. John is saying very clearly this word of warning. Those who have no fruit are the ones that have already had the ax penetrate and but another swing. And you will be cut down. For the king will come in judgment. This is a lot like John's letter, folks. Right? Remember the line in the sand I talked about last Sunday? The world, those who are in Christ. Here's what's being said here. The king that's coming is Savior and Judge. But he is only known as Savior or as Judge. Our sins were judged by God on the cross of Christ for those who will be saved in his kingdom. But those who will not honor him as king and repent and believe the gospel will not know him as savior. They will only know him as judge. John goes on. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John goes straight to the supremacy of Christ and the work of Christ. He's mightier than I, and his work is the work that God has declared he will do when his kingdom comes to earth. And he describes Jesus' work as a baptism of fire. This is actually very important. Again, R.C. Sproul, he says, Think not that you come to a Savior and a King who will keep you out of the fire. He will keep you out of the eternal fire, yes. But in the meantime, he comes to baptize with a fire that cleanses and purges and purifies us and produces what the crucible was designed to create in the first place, the pure gold of our being sanctified. 
So don't think that Jesus doesn't come with fire. John calls it a baptism of fire that will be a fire of purification, a fire of cleansing. How is that going to happen? Well, hearts that have been stoned and are made into hearts of flesh and faith, we are united in the gospel, as John taught us in his letter, to Christ the King and what was his own process by which God would rescue us. His own suffering, his death to self, his cross, his humiliation, followed by resurrection. And in the New Testament, we see this picture of that's your route of cleansing. You will have God by his spirit in you, work death in you, burn up what is all about you. That you would then be changed and you'd be united with Christ and you would be made righteous. You would be washed. You would be cleansed. I think of 1 Corinthians 6. You who know what sin is that you wrestle with, such were you, but you have been washed and cleansed and sanctified. You're not that anymore because the king that came came to cleanse with a baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire, a purification just as the dross is purified from the gold. But it's only for those who repent. It's only for those who see their uncleanness. And so that's the question of the text. Do you see your uncleanness? I stand here preaching. I'm not a wild man. I don't have wild clothing on. We're not at the edge of town. But understand, this is the same wild message. Repent because the axe is being swung against sin in Christ. Does that, does that move you? Or do you tend to say, well, well, hold on a second. I mean, I go to church. I'm a good person. I don't like to think of God having this much wrath. I'm not that bad. And John in this text is saying to us, no, there is only one solution. It is to repent and turn. So John knew either I'm going to be received as crazy or sent from God. And that's what this is here. This is either crazy or it's sent from God. The kingdom is at hand and it is a crisis moment for all who are unprepared and uninterested. And the, 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 re, the reality is we live in a world that is completely disinterested in the idea of the judgment of God. But John in this passage says, but it's the supreme crisis of humanity. It's such an urgent crisis, he then adds another image. He says, the winnowing fork is in his hand. Whose hand? Christ's hand, the king's hand, the king of heaven and earth. And he will come and he will clear his threshing floor. It's his barn, it's his wheat, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Think of this image. A winnowing fork is also called like a winnowing fan. So I want you to imagine this. It's in the hand of the farmer. But again, the urgency of the illustration, the farmer doesn't wake up in the morning and say, you know what? Yeah, I think I'm going to clear my threshing floor today. Let me put the pot of coffee on. Let's eat some eggs. Make my way to the shed. Get the winnowing fan. See how much I can accomplish today. That is not the image. The image is the, the king, the farmer, has the winnowing fan in his hand. And it's in this moment that when his kingdom comes to earth, just like the wheat would be beat and the fans 
creating any measure of airflow, just the slightest bit will blow the chaff away. The substance that's valuable will remain. John says, that's what's happening as Jesus comes to earth. The division has begun between the wheat and the chaff, between the humble and the proud, the repentant and the unrepentant, the clean and the unclean. It's weird to to think that as we start our fall sermon series, the first message is, this is a moment of crisis for us if we don't believe the gospel. You know, I wrote a note to myself, welcome visitors. I don't know if I see any 8.45 a.m. visitors, maybe some later. This is kind of a hellfire and brimstone church. Is it one of those? No, it's an expository preaching church. And this is the word that's been given to us at the very beginning of the gospel of Matthew, which is announcing that the king is Jesus and the king is coming and his kingdom comes with a warning of wrath against those who will reject him. Another way to say it is, if the end goal is maturity in Christ, you don't get coddled into maturity. There's a point at which you also don't get screamed at by some crazy football coach in your face or something. But honest warning about real risk is how you help someone mature. So you don't, you don't invite people to come to church to be entertained, to be coddled, to be told everything's going to be okay. This was the problem in the prophet's day when Jeremiah was told by God to tell the people to stop listening to the prophets and tell you everything's going to be fine. You're not listening. You're about to be deported to Babylon and Jerusalem's about to be sacked. Heed the warning and repent. This is all through the Bible. And so it's encouraging today to just trust in what God has for us to say, well, God, whoever's here today, I guess needs to be warned just like I need to be warned. This is a moment of crisis. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so I'm going to kind of close this up, but let me make sure you understand what I mean when I say repent. What's the definition of the word repentance? Listen to this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God offered to us does with great and real hatred of sin turn from it to God with full purpose of new obedience. Have you done that? I hate my sin. But 2 Corinthians 7 says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve unto repentance. And then when we repent, we don't even have regret for the fact that we sinned because we're so aware of what God is doing to rescue our heart. We understand it was part of his story to take us to a place to see him as our king. But without the grief that leads to repentance, we have to understand that this warning may be for us. That's the message of John the Baptist. But here's the thing. That's also the melody of the whole book of Matthew. So let me share with you what I think the whole gospel of Matthew is about. It's just going to reinforce this. Every book of the Bible, I think you've heard me say, has a melody like a song that just recurs. And when you read the different parts of that book, the melody, the whole book should be in the background to help you understand how to place what you're reading into the big story, right? The big song. What's the melody of the gospel of of, of Matthew? Well, jump all the way to the end of the gospel. So we're at the beginning now. We go to jump to the end and we hear Jesus, who's about to ascend to his father, say something super duper important. He's already lived a life of obedience. He's had a ministry of power. He suffered on the cross. He's died. 
He's resurrected. Heaven came down to earth in the form of a king, just like God said it would. And right before Jesus ascended to the, to the Father in heaven, here's what happens. Matthew 28, verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the Great Commission. So if we put what we've looked at at the beginning of Matthew with what Jesus says at the end of Matthew, here's what I think the melody, the melodic line of this book is that I hope we will sing. It's this. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth in Jesus with all authority to all nations for all obedience in all fulfillment of the prophets. I'm going to say that again because I hope you'll, you'll memorize this with me. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth in Jesus with all authority to all nations for all obedience in all fulfillment of the prophets. Okay, so if that's true, do you see the crisis of unrepentant sin in your life? In my life? Do you see why the, ma the, the message of John the Baptist was repent again then? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the king will return with all authority, with all judgment, or with all salvation. Understand with me this day that maturity in Christ until Jesus returns should look like continual, regular, repenting, and believing the gospel of the king. Would that we are called to it, give ourselves to it, participate in it, disciple others in it, Evangelize because of it, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me pray. Father, I just ask that as we enter this gospel, you will show us the, the value of each week entering into it and, the, and that we would see Jesus as he is presented in this gospel particularly. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven that has been come down to earth in his life, his cross, his resurrection. And he has all authority. And all nations will call him king. And we are called to give all obedience. And we can know who he is because he is all fulfillment of every promise. And Lord, for those of us that sit here with your spirit's work in our heart and hear it, would our response be repentance again today? Of wanting to turn from self-intoxication or world intoxication and would you receive praise and glory? And would you add to our number daily those you're saving to be a part of your kingdom? But would we heed the warning that must be heeded for entrance and for steadfast participation in that kingdom? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.